Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 47, The First Union. Remember that this is an independent podcast. We have no adverts or corporate backer, just you, the listener. If you want to spread word about the show, then please consider leaving an iTunes review. It's quick and easy, just load up iTunes, search for the podcast, and then click on the stars. It takes less than 30 seconds and is of tremendous value. If you're listening on an iPhone, you could even do it while you listen. Special thanks this week to our newest pioneer, listener Rebecca. Thank you, I couldn't do the show without you. During our last episode, we set up the New England Confederation. This was a union of the four Puritan colonies of New England, Massachusetts, Plymouth, New Haven, and Connecticut. Today, we get into the history of the first attempted union in American history. The first task the Confederation would have to deal with was an Indian war between two of the powerful tribes of the region, the Narragansetts and the Mohegans. These two had recently signed an agreement to discuss any potential differences between the two with the English before war broke out, but it seems that this was ignored and the Narragansetts attacked a collection of other tribes. The Narragansetts were defeated and their chief captured. It was decided that the best thing to do with their prisoner was to bring him to the English, directly involving the colonies. The English feared the chief and the trouble that he could potentially cause for them, therefore it was decided that the safest option would be to have him killed. This would come back to haunt the United Colonies, as it earned them the antagonism of the Narragansetts, who would continue to be a danger to the English. After it became clear that they wouldn't directly attack the other Indian tribes, for the involvement of the English, they just decided to attack the English. A surprise assault was planned in 1645, although the efforts of Roger Williams and the swift action of the commissioners prevented war from breaking out. A peace treaty was signed. However, this was only a piece of paper, not a paper of peace. The Narragansetts did everything they could over the next five years to try and undermine it. They set to work building an alliance, which would have been enough to destroy the English, and it's quite possible that, had the Confederation not existed, the colonies would have been destroyed. It took some rather nifty diplomacy and a great deal of luck that the attack never happened. The Narragansetts had managed to bring over to their side both the Mohawks and the Pocumducks. The Mohawks never showed up, two of their braves were killed by the French and so they turned their attentions northwards to New France, and the Pocumducks were persuaded to abandon the efforts without the Mohawks. This led the Narragansetts alone, and they decided against launching an attack by themselves. The following years of quiet allowed the English to deal with the other reason for the Confederation, the Dutch. This was of primary concern to New Haven, the most westerly of the colonies, which was itself trying to launch another colony to the south in what would become Delaware. Their fortunes were thus rather intertwined with the Dutch and the Swedes. Indeed, the trading post set up 
on the Delaware had been taken over by the Swedes, and so the commissioners protested this. This was, well, anything other than a success. The Dutch, who were about to take over New Sweden, sent a letter to the English documenting the wrongs they had done. Eventually, New Haven was forced to abandon the whole enterprise. But it was a sign of the rising antagonism that was growing between the Dutch and the English. I don't want to get too much into this, since we really have covered an awful lot of this during our overview of New Netherland. But basically, New Netherland was threatened by the Union. New Netherland had enough troubles to deal with, but it could at least try to manage the competition between the various colonies. It would be very difficult, but it was something that could be attempted. However, the union of the troublesome Connecticut and New Haven colonies, which were pressing on the borders of New Netherland, with the powerful colony by the bay, spelled trouble. It could no longer compete on equal terms. This soon became obvious, as the Dutch could only send angry letters to New England whenever another New England town was set up in Dutch territory. Finally, a treaty was drawn up in 1650, which was a victory for the New Englanders. It drew the boundary line between New England and New Netherland as north of Greenwich Bay and on Long Island as south from Oyster Bay. We must also mention another group now who will be given a full introduction in time, the French. There were complicated relations between New England and New France after Massachusetts managed to get meddled in French affairs in 1644. This was placed into the wider political context of events back in Europe. It wasn't clear exactly how the English Civil War would play out at this point, and the New England colonies were sympathetic to Parliament. This isn't particularly surprising given their Puritan character. Despite this inclination, they couldn't afford to offend Charles. He still might win. France was on good terms with Charles, and so it was important that, while they might have issues with New France, they had to remain friendly in case they needed to defend their actions. Relations managed to calm down to the point that New France proposed a free trade agreement with New England in 1647, and in 1650 proposed joint military action against the Iroquois, who were enemies of the French. Both these proposals failed to gain traction. Massachusetts learnt its lesson after the 1644 debacle, and had no more wish to be involved in French matters. Foreign policy was the main concern of the Confederate government, but it was by no means the only one. While the immigrants to New England had a wide variety of backgrounds, Puritanism was the most significant. Puritanism had very intellectual connotations. As you'll recall from the Oliver Cromwell episode, Puritanism grew particularly strongly around Cambridge. This meant that the New Englanders were naturally inclined to foster this atmosphere in their new home. In 1636, Harvard College was founded, and as an ode to their centre of learning in England, they renamed the town around it 
Cambridge. The Confederation took effort to secure funding for the college, with help from the various colonies. They also set about economic activities, such as standardising measurements and the quality of the toll roads. They made recommendations about the best ways to fish, and stopped the sale of grain between the colonies, since Connecticut was flooding the market. They also made the ambitious move of setting up a joint stock company to trade with the Indians, proposing to raise £10,000 for use in the fur trade. It was an intriguing idea which was met with excitement in Massachusetts, but Plymouth refused to be involved, and so the idea quickly died. It also had another beneficial function. It could serve as an arbitrator between quarrels of the various colonies, and fairly settle issues over such matters as jurisdiction. The most famous of these disputes is known as the Impost Controversy. Until the creation of the railroad, it was of prime importance for settlements to have access to a body of water for trade. This was why the various New England settlements, such as Boston and Plymouth, clung to the coast. Most of the New England rivers were very quick and unsuitable for transportation. The best way of shipping goods out of the New England interior was down the Connecticut River. This produced an issue. Massachusetts was the more powerful colony, and so many of the interior settlements had joined Massachusetts, despite being upstream of the Connecticut. One such example was Springfield. In 1646, Springfield refused to pay the duty to Connecticut for sending goods through the mouth of the river. Connecticut was offended, and Massachusetts defended her town. Eventually, the issue was brought to the Confederation. The Massachusetts commissioners made the case that since Springfield was part of Massachusetts and not Connecticut, Connecticut had no right to force a duty upon those on which she had no legal jurisdiction. Connecticut made the point that the impost was demanded from all settlements along the river, regardless of which colony the settlement was in. This was used for mutual defence by funding the Saybrook Fort at the mouth of the river, which offered protection to all settlements on it. Springfield benefited from the protection of the fort, therefore she should have to pay the impost. Both Plymouth and New Haven sided with the commissioners from Connecticut. The rate was two pence per bushel of corn and twenty shillings per hogshead of beaver. This was perfectly reasonable. But Massachusetts was not happy with the decision, and appealed in 1648. The commissioners again decided with Connecticut. The next year, 1649, Massachusetts once more appealed, but this time tried a rather underhand tactic. Tariffs were imposed on goods from Plymouth, New Haven, and Connecticut if they imported or exported in Massachusetts. This was an action which changed the nature of the relationship. It became clear to all that this wasn't exactly an equal partnership. Sure, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Haven and Plymouth all sent the same number of delegates to the Confederate government, 
But this hid the fact that Massachusetts was far more powerful than the other three. On issues important to Massachusetts, it could throw its weight around, and it became clear throughout the course of events that Massachusetts wasn't exactly afraid of this. In many cases, political organisations, particularly those on the multi-state level, will not work if one element is determined to win. Arguably the most famous example of this in American history will be a long way down the road when we look at the impeachment trial of President Andrew Johnson. There was no evidence that Johnson committed the crimes he was charged with. Congress just wanted him out of office. He was never actually impeached, though. Had he been impeached for fabricated reasons, the legitimacy of constitutional government would have been severely damaged, and we have no idea what the implications of that would be. However, we can perhaps give some insight into this blow to the United Colonies of New England. New Haven and Plymouth both sided with Massachusetts, and Connecticut dropped the issue. Connecticut had been acting in terms of standard international protocol, which is why New Haven and Plymouth sided with them in the first place. Massachusetts wasn't exactly wrong in its defence of Springfield, but it had won by circumventing the system. Plymouth and New Haven were both scared of challenging Massachusetts, and no longer would wish to arbitrate decisions against it. Connecticut was spooked too. It was a very damaging blow. It's worth noting that when the federal government was formed, most of the battles took place between the big states and the small. The small states had feared that they would be bullied by the larger states, and with historical examples such as Massachusetts and the United Colonies of New England, it seems as though they had every right to be. But as with Andrew Johnson, all that is for much, much later in the story. We'll bring things to a close here for this week, and take up things next time as the Confederation dealt with the aftermath of the impost controversy. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then remember that you can visit us online, thehistoryofpodcast.com. That is the place to go if you want to sign up for membership. Just click on the PayPal subscription button. You can continue the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast, and on Twitter at History Jamie. Also, feel free to send me an email. The address is the history of podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.